You are listening to a sermon by Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A dot com. We're in the book of Acts. We're soldiering on. We're getting life lessons from the, from the first century uh, for uh, our life in the 21st century. Uh, at this point in the account, Paul has, after about three years, decided to leave the remarkable city of Ephesus. Uh, but before he gets a chance to leave, uh, a riot breaks out in the city. And that's where we pick up the story at Acts chapter 19, verses 23 through 41. Uh, the text is printed for you in your bulletin. And uh, if I'm going to ask you to, if you're able, to please stand for the reading uh, of God's word. Acts 19, 23 to 41, a remarkable event here in the early church, days of the early church. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. The way is what, how Christianity was referred to then. Um, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is the Artemis, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with, with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. Most of them didn't know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd, but when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet, do nothing rash, for you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. 
Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly, for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. This is God's word. You may be seated. Big doings in Ephesus that day, right? Um, Let's pray. Father, give us humble, teachable, and obedient hearts now that we may receive what you have revealed and do what you have commanded. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to make a statement that's important for everybody, but I want especially our young people to hear it. And I'm paraphrasing Christian writer Francis Chan. And here's the statement. Your greatest fear should not be fear of failure. Your greatest fear should be fear of succeeding at things in life that don't ultimately matter or last. You know, the world is full of people who have spent years climbing a ladder only to discover it's been leaning against the wrong building. There is a battle for your soul going on out there every day. The world, your own flesh, the powers of darkness are constantly combining and conspiring to get you to settle for less. In fact, to settle for something that will ultimately bring you down. You are created in the image of God. You have great dignity because of that reality. Uh, And because you were created in the image of God, you you were made to live in relationship to him. You're made to be centered on him, grounded on him. But you and I have hearts that wander, right? And and because of that, we continually de-center God. We move him off center and we put something else, put some other good thing, usually a good thing, in God's rightful place in our lives. And that's what the Bible calls idolatry. I mean, don't think of idolatry simply as, you know, bowing before some sort of statue. Uh, Idolatry in its essence is making something usually a good thing, the indispensable thing in your life, the thing that you have to have, the thing that brings you meaning and happiness and identity. This account is, of course, all about idolatry, right? And what I do is, what I want to do this morning is explore this whole idea, the concept of idolatry by asking and answering from this text three questions. Uh, First, What are your idols? What are are your idols? Number two, how do you know that an idol has you in its grip? And number three, how do you release the idol's grip on your life? How do you release the idol's grip on your life? Those are three important questions. What are your idols? How do you know an idol has you in its grip? How do you release that grip? Okay? So first, what are your idols? Well, let's look at the text. What were the idols of Demetrius and his silversmith 
colleagues and the other craftsmen. At first glance, right, it seems obvious that the, that the idol would, would be the goddess Artemis or Diana, as the, as the Romans knew her. Uh, it was her temple. Uh, the temple in Artemis, or the temple of Artemis in Ephesus was a remarkable facility. Uh, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was huge, four times bigger than the Parthenon uh, in Athens. If you've ever been to the Parthenon, you could get a sense of the scale of the temple of Artemis. And Demetrius... Uh, and the other silversmiths uh, were in the business of making silver, little silver replicas of the temple, uh, probably also silver replicas of the statue uh, of Diana. And these, were, these weren't just souvenir trinkets, right, like the, that you get in the, the gift sh- shop that you have to usually are channeled through in places like this. But these were actually meant to be objects of worship. They were, the the pilgrims, pilgrims from all over the world would come to Ephesus to visit the temple of Artemis. Then they would buy these little shrines and and take them home to, uh, to, to be a part of worship. So you'd think, well, that was their, their idolatry, but you know, that's just surface level. Right? What's, what's really going on here behind the idolatry that is the real idolatry? And, and you see it in verses 25, 26, and 27. What, what, what was it that really gripped the hearts uh, of Demetrius and, and the others? Three things, right? Number one, wealth. Verse, verse 25, wealth. This, this, this is what brings us our wealth this trade. Uh, Number two, their reputations. What others thought of them and thought of their profession. That was important to them. That's verse 27. And finally, also in verse 27, there was operating here at at a heart level, a kind of civic pride, right? Uh, You know, we're, we're Ephesians, we're, you know, we're citizens of Ephesus. We have this magnificent temple. Everybody in the world knows Ephesus. Everybody in the world makes a pilgrimage to Ephesus. We're where the action is. We want to keep it that way. We're Ephesus strong, right? Let's keep Ephesus great. Those things are what we're operating under the surface uh, level uh, of their lives. That's w- those things were their real idolatry, right? Wealth, reputation, kind of a, na- a civic or nationalist pride. Uh, it's a remarkably contemporary slate of idols, isn't it? Now you begin to see just how, how, how relevant uh, this, this account is to our lives. And, right beneath the surface of what we see of you, you know, what, what's driving you? What really drives you? What, what determines the decisions you make? What sets your priorities? Is it money? Is it, what other, is, it what, is it what others think of you? Is it what others think of the, the job you do? Is it pride in your country and your political affiliation? What is it that really drives you? What are your idols? And you know, you and I can turn almost anything into an idol. 
Um, it could be a spouse. Could be a boyfriend, girlfriend. Could be marriage. Could be family. Could be successful children. It could be uh, your neighborhood. It could be your granite countertops. That's probably. I've used that too long. I think granite countertops are out now. That idol has gone away. Um, could be control. Uh, it could be autonomy, right? Your own, your own sense of autonomy. No one's going to tell me what to do. Uh, right? It, this, in, in idolatry, what you're doing is you're taking something, usually a good thing. You know, it might be, a, it could be drugs, something like that, alcohol, but usually a good thing. You're taking a good thing and making it the ultimate thing. The thing that's indispensable if you're going to be a happy and fulfilled person. Now, but some of you were saying, well, look, these are good things. Uh, nothing, you know, so what's the big problem with it? idolatry? You know, if, if I'm living for these things, what's the big problem with it? Well, that gets us to our second question then. So while you're thinking about what, what really drives you, what are your idols and Christians, we have them too because our hearts are prone to wander. Our second question then is, how do you know an idol has you in its grip? Maybe you don't think idols are your issue. Well, how do you, how do you know that an idol has you in its grip? Do you, well, do you hear first what that question assumes? It assumes that an idol can grip you. Um, it, it, that, that an idol has gripping power. And it's true. Listen, friends, if you have to have it, it already has you. If you have to have the approval of other people, those people control your lives. If you, have to, uh, if you have to have a certain level of income, that lifestyle choice, that income choice controls you, right? It, it determines what jobs you're going to take, what decisions you're going to make, where you're going to live. So very, first of all, the very a fundamental danger of an idol uh, is that it means that you're going to be controlled by it. You're controlled by whatever that idol is, and by definition, since it's an idol, it's, since it's something other than God, what, what it isn't is the loving, merciful, merciful, forgiving God of the Bible. Idols show you no mercy. Idols show no forgiveness. Right? How forgiving is a career? Right? How merciful is, is the market? Right. It's not. So, back to the question, how do you know you're in the grip of an idol? Well, the, there, are some, there are some telltale signs that you're in the grip of an idol, and they're all reflected right here in this amazing story about this silversmith riot. Let me point out a few uh, telltale signs. First, you know you're in the grip of an idol if when that idol is threatened, you react with over-the-top anger. You become a really angry person. Think about it, right? What, a, what an idol is. It's something that you have to have. It's something that I have to have to be the person I want to be the happy person, the fulfilled person I want to be. Take that away, threaten it, you're like, a, you know, it's like poking the bear. 
Uh, bears don't like to be poked. And they get angry, right? The silversmiths had, had elevated money and reputations and, and, and the pride of Ephesus to indispensable needs in their lives. That's what they had to have. And now Paul's threatening it. His message, Paul's teaching, is threatening th- that idol. And what happens? They get angry. I mean, they get really angry. Look at verse 28, first part of verse 28. When they heard through Demetrius what Paul was saying, God's made with hands aren't gods at all. What, what, what does it say? They were enraged. Check your anger, friends. Check your anger. What are you getting angry about? Second, you know you're in the grip of an idol when confusion reigns, right? We got confusion all over this account, right? It's mentioned first in verse 29, the city is thrown into confusion, and then it's mentioned again in verse 32, when the, when the, when the crowd, the mob, goes down the main street to the, to the amphitheater in Ephesus, it's amazing, it's still there, um, and, uh, and it says they're in, they were in confusion, and this is verse 32, and most of them did not know why they had come together, Right? Talk about confused. Here, here, here I am at the stadium, right? Why am I here? What's going on? Um, idols, when they let you down, and they always will let you down, will make you confused. They'll leave you confused. I read recently about a professor at, uh, at Stanford University who, who retired. And, and he confessed in retiring Here's his, here's his language. If I am no longer a professor at Stanford, what am I? If I'm no longer a professor at Stanford, what am I? Now, it's not like that guy is stupid, right? But when the, uh, he clearly made his position and his status as a professor uh, at, at a university like Stanford, that had, was his idol. That's who he was. Right, And when that was no longer there because he retired, he was confused. He was confused about something as basic as his identity. Idols do that. Some of you are probably sitting here today going, who am I? You know, what, what am I? Why am I here? What's my purpose for living? Third, you know you're in the grip of an idol when it causes your reason and rationality to go out the window. It's kind of related to the fact that we get angry when our, when, when, when our idols are threatened, right? Because when, they got, when, when, the, when the silversmiths got angry in verse 28, what, how did they respond? With, with civil discourse? No, well, verse 28, they started shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And then later, right, after they had moved down and convened in the theater, uh, and when the Jewish man Alexander stood up to make a defense, he got canceled, right? The crowd canceled him big time. And how did they cancel him? They just shouted him down for two hours. Now imagine, if you ever go to Ephesus, you'll see it. It's built, this beautiful stadium is built, it's an amphitheater, built into the side of a hill, seats 24,000 people. 
Now, can you imagine 24,000 people? I don't know how many were there, but a lot of people in that amphitheater shouting for two hours, chanting for two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I mean, imagine how that would have sounded. See, you get wrapped around an idol and reasonable discussion goes out the window. We shout at each other, we shout over each other. Fourth, you know you're in the grip of an idol when it does things to you. you it, 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 makes you it leads you to do things that you can't imagine that you'd ever do. Right? Um, At a very basic level, I mean, I, I, I know in my earlier career as, as an attorney that demanded a lot of hours, there, there, were, there were men and women in my profession who paid lip service to, to being parents, but who with, you know, 100 plus hour weeks were really sacrificing their children in ways that they would have never have imagined they would do. But there they are doing it, right? And here, the crowd is whipped into this frenzy. What, what did they do? They're at risk, says the town clerk at verse 40, of causing the Romans to intervene. That would have been a disaster because it sure looked like what they were doing might be considered by the Romans to be an insurrection, to be a riot. I'll bet not one of those people in that stadium that day got up and said, you know, I think I'm going to go riot today. No. But that's what they did. It was their dedication to their idols that made them do what they couldn't imagine themselves doing. Finally, fifth, you know you're in the grip of an idol when it doesn't deliver what it promised. Right? Now this account opens up with the with this, and, 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 and Paul's the problem, right? This Demetrius and the other silversmith say, Paul and his colleagues are the problem. They're the threat to our society and our well-being. We need to deal with them. But then as, now as the account ends, it's flipped, right? It's revealed by the town clerk that, listen, the real threat to, to our society here, guys, and our well-being is you. It's not Paul. And his colleagues, in fact, the town clerk says in verse 37, they're neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers. The end of the day, the silversmiths are sent home and Paul is set free to go off to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. Their idols didn't deliver. In fact, they delivered the exact opposite of what they uh, had of what, what they they thought uh, would happen, what they what the idols promised them. I've quoted this before. It's a good contemporary example. Um, t- t- Tom Brady, right, the great football uh, quarterback, uh, in a now famous uh, 2005 interview uh, by CBS. Um, said this in response to a question. Why do I have, this? remember this is 2005, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life, and I think 
God, it's got to be more than this. Well, it's been 18 years on since that interview. Now he's got seven rings in a cabinet somewhere, no wife, sharing his kids, and he's yesterday's news. You know, I expect, I don't know, but I expect Tom Brady is, is still saying or thinking something similar to what he thought in 2005. Idols don't deliver. I've been working my way through Psalm 119, the longest psalm in the Bible. Man, it's unbelievably long. It's taking me, I'm still not through it, it's days. Um, and, and I ran across a verse buried somewhere in, you know, in the hundreds, verse 100 something, um, of um, Psalm 119 that was talking about people who, who forsake God, who move away from God's word, God's law, who build their lives on something other than God. And it says of them, it describes them by saying their delusions come to nothing. Their delusions come to nothing. That, that's a perfect sort of description of, of the life dedicated to an idol. It's really a deluded life. Idols not only don't deliver, they delude. You become delusional. And your life, like the idols, comes to nothing. Well, unless you're you know, a person who is extremely not self-aware, uh, or maybe you've been living under a rock for the last three, four years. If you've heard that, those five sort of telltale signs of, of, no, of whether an idol has you in its grip, you have to have been able to see something, somewhere in there, something of your own heart, right? And something of, t- of the news that we're all watching, right? We are a people and we are a nation that just like the Ephesians in the Roman Empire struggling with idols and so that brings us to the third and the last question how do you how do you release the idols grip on your life you don't want to be a person who's going to come to nothing right you want your life to really matter and to have significance you got to get it off of an idol and get it back onto the Lord, right? Um, so, how do you release the idol's grip on your life? And then that's sort of a, the individual level question. On a more broad scale, you know, how do you work to release the grips of the idols on our culture, on our society, right? Let, let me address that last one first. When it comes to the f- culture, you know what I, want, what I want to do, what I tend to default to when I see some idol operating in our culture for, for ill, for evil, what I want to do is default to power. I, I want to default to essentially playing their game. Use whatever power I have to work against the power of the idols in our land. And look, there's a place for that, for things like boycotts, for example. That would be a, 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 an illustration of that. Especially, and boycotts, especially in our democratic society where unlike the Roman Empire, we, we participate in the governing process. 
But friends, we must not forget that we're followers of Jesus also, right? And that as, as followers of Jesus, we also possess a power that the world and the idols do not have. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. Christian, if, if, if you are a Christian, you possess the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation. The power of God, right? We should be battling idols in a way that highlights not only what we're against, but who we are for. People weren't buying silver Artemis shrines in Ephesus, right? The market was shrinking. Why? Because they'd been transformed by the gospel. They were for Jesus. They weren't necessarily anti-shrine. They were for Jesus. Remember what Luke told us right before this account. Right? Paul takes his ministry out of the synagogue and he rents a lecture hall owned by a guy named Tyrannus. And he meets in this lecture hall for two years, every day. And what does he do there? He just talks to people about Jesus. Anybody that wants to come by, they could show up and Paul would engage them in civil, reasonable persuasive discussion. Opening up the scriptures, showing them Jesus, proving that he's the Messiah, showing why he's the truth and why you need to believe in him. It, you know, but he must have done something else too. He almost, in addition to doing that, he must also have loved the people that came, came to him. How do I know that? Because of what it says here in verses 30 and 31. Right? Paul wanted to wade into that theater that day, into that, into that angry mob in the theater, and the, and the disciples, uh, you know, meaning the uh, disciples of Jesus, wouldn't let him go. You know, had, had Paul gone into that theater that day, he probably would have been torn apart. Right? But, but it wasn't just the disciples of Jesus, right? I, I mentioned, I read it, you probably were wondering what the you know, who, who are these people? It says that even some of the Asiarchs, this is verse 31, who were friends of his, friends of Paul, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Who are Asiarchs? Asiarchs were the town clerk's boss, right? These were wealthy people, high officials in Ephesus, dedicated to the cult of Artemis. But these Asiarchs were Paul's friends, No doubt they had, they had come by the lecture hall of Tyrannus and engaged in dialogue with Paul. And Paul certainly would have talked to them about Jesus, but he, almost, but he also almost certainly would have loved them like Jesus. Because these, these officials, Asiarchs, who by all rights would be his enemy, became his friends. They loved him, they respected him, they feared for his life. Even though they apparently didn't believe in Jesus, they didn't buy Paul's message. 
Friends, what that says is that we fight idols primarily, not exclusively, but primarily by faithfully living out our faith among our neighbors and among our enemies. That's what the Ephesian Christians did and Ephesus was turned upside down. And I'm pleased to announce to you that the temple of Artemis is not there today. Uh, But the church of Jesus Christ is still growing around the world. Because the gospel is the power of God. Now, Turning it, that's sort of at a cultural level, societal level, turning it to yourself. How do you loosen the grip of an idol around your own heart? Right? You know, you're, you're, you're diagnosing yourself. You go, man, I'm, I am so wrapped around the axle of money. I'm so wrapped around the axle of, of human approval. I'm so wrapped, wrapped around the axle of a, you know, success as the world defines it. How do you get rid of that? How do you release that grip? Well, you don't just cancel it. You can't just cancel it. You can't just say, oh, I'm, I'm done with it. I, you know, it, it's too strong for that. You don't just get rid of it. You don't just hate it. You don't, you don't have to hate your career. You don't have to hate success or reputation. You don't have to hate your family or your spouse or your peers or your country. No, on the contrary, those are good things that you should love. But you have to, what Jesus says, you have to love them less than you love Jesus. Love them, but love them less than Jesus. They cannot be the ultimate thing. Jesus has to be the ultimate arbiter. The career has to bend to Jesus. Your success, your reputation, your, de- your self-definition, all of it has to bend f- fundamentally and ultimately to Jesus, right? Jesus is the only one who will be there for you when nothing and no one else is. So how do you do that? How do you love Jesus more? You, listen, I've tried. You don't just go home and grit your teeth and go, I've got to love Jesus more. <laughs> Doesn't work, right? You, you, you don't command emotion like that. Um, what you have to do is, is really what those people in Ephesus did with Paul. And, and friends, this, I, I'm, really, I'm talking... Pastor to people here and as a fellow learner and struggler here. This is not something that you can do, you know, in two minutes a day. I mean, we need to invest in the relationship with Jesus. Well, we, what did Paul do? He sat down with these people and they talked about Jesus. They considered Jesus. They thought seriously about him. They, they reflected on what the scriptures said about him. They worked through the implications of, of what Jesus, uh, who, of Jesus' identity and what Jesus did. What are the implications of that on, on your life, right? You have to start working through, thinking through deeply. Jesus, right? And you have to get to the point that I'm sure the Ephesians got to, right? Get to the point of seeing, listen, make it personal now, seeing Jesus come down to earth for you. Jesus living for you. Jesus going to the cross, dying for you. Jesus 
blowing open the tomb and rising from the dead for you. This is not some academic, dusty history. This is, an, this is Jesus doing this for you. Amen. You know, we talked about it. The disciples and the Asiarchs stopped Paul from wading into that deadly crowd. But remember, there, just not long before that, there was another group of disciples that tried to stop Jesus from wading into an angry mob. Not in Ephesus, but in Jerusalem. But Jesus would not be stopped. Remember what he said to uh, Peter. Get behind me, Satan. I'm not listening to your message. I've got to go into that mob. So Jesus strode into that angry, deadly crowd knowingly, intentionally, for you, let that crowd take his life so you could live. Not just now, but so that you could live even beyond your dying. Friends, you and I have to start seeing Jesus like that. I mean, get to the point where, where the love of Jesus becomes real to you, where it begins to melt your heart, right? And what, what's going to happen when that, when, when that begins to happen is that you're going to be moved, first, you're going to move to love others like Jesus did, right? just like Paul did. And you're going to discover the joy and the freedom of realizing that a career is just a career. Money is just money. People are just people. And you're going to revel in the newfound reality that you are a beloved, forgiven, justified son or daughter of the king. And your sin, your shame, your regrets, your failures, your deceits, your hypocrisies, all of it were nailed to the cross and you bear them no more. When Jesus was nailed to the cross, you are Christian, fully known, scary, fully loved, better. Trust him with your life. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Uh, what a remarkable story. It'd make a good movie, this silversmith riot. Um, I thank you, Lord, that we have in us a power that is beyond anything the world knows, anything our idols know. Um, help us, Lord. Give us the will, the discipline, the seriousness to, to dive into your word, to talk with others, to, for the purpose not just of gaining information and knowledge, but of knowing you so that we will know your love for us and your forgiveness of us. May that ultimately define us and give us the freedom of the children of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.